So those are the administrative details, and I will now proceed to uh, offer the land acknowledgement. We want to uh, acknowledge that we are here on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the new credit First Nation. We also acknowledge the presence of other indigenous nations who now call this territory home. The Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. For the benefit of those who are connected to the internet, the city clerk has Welcome to the second episode of Planning Through Land Acknowledgements. Last episode, we discussed land back, some of the history of the area around Toronto, as well as some of the challenges that young planners are seeing as they work towards completing York University's planning program in the Faculty of Environmental Studies. This episode, I talked to another fellow planning student named Eli. We discuss solidarity as an expression of further action beyond land acknowledgements and take a closer look at planning policy and history. For this episode, I wanted to focus on planning's role in land-based practices and really start to explore the colonial roots of planning. For me, when I, like for the longest time, I've struggled with um, land acknowledgements and more so with the, like, I guess the significance and validity of land acknowledgements in general. Um, because in the beginning, especially like being, like I think the first time I heard of land, land acknowledgement was in my first year of undergrad. And I thought it was so nifty because we've learned about, or at least I've learned about personally of indigenous history and uh, the trials and tribulations they've, they've gone through throughout the century, like throughout the years and decades, especially in Canada on my own, because I didn't really learn in school. Um, and it was just nice to hear someone finally acknowledge, I guess, the sort of a bit of the pain that they've gone through um, in our country. Um, but then over time, I started to um, realize that you, you can only attend so many presentations and talks and um, student presentations or classes where people would just acknowledge and acknowledge and acknowledge and acknowledge what has already been acknowledged, right? Um, when it comes to indigenous people and their past and um, their land being taken away or stolen, really. And it just came to a point where I was like, so if we're just continuously acknowledging, this is like, for five years or like for four years now, I'm realizing that we've just been acknowledging. Um, and I'm sure it's been being acknowledged for decades now too. When are we actually going to do something about it where we can finally stop having to acknowledge it and we can start acknowledging the good that we're doing and like maybe acknowledging like, hey, they got their land back or this certain um, group of indigenous individuals got their land back, right? And that's never happened because they're not, frankly, they're not getting their land back really or the land that they deserve. These words of acknowledgments mean nothing, really. They're just said and they're put out there into space, right? And they just go nowhere, right? There's no action of reconciliation. There's no action of justice. There's no provisions given to these indigenous people on a significant level, I feel like. And that's when I realized that land acknowledges really are just not as um, significant, I guess, compared to like other ways you can um, um, provide for the Indigenous communities, right? Because I, I, I'm i sure Indigenous people appreciate people acknowledging um, their pain and the history and their histories, but I'm sure they're at a point as well where they're just like, okay, we're tired of all this acknowledgement and we want some sort of um, reconciliation starting, you know, some significant reconciliation from the top down um, rather than just constantly seeing it from the bottom up, right? Because the top down is what probably has a lot more power and a lot more um, capabilities to create some sort of change, right? And the bottom up can only do so much because we're limited by our own our own finances or our own sort of support from the public or whatnot. 
I wanted to start with this part of the interview because it captures a lot of what Eli and I talked about throughout our conversation. There's a sense that land acknowledgements have become wallpaper at an event. As we heard about last episode, this undermines the potential for people to fully engage with the content of the land acknowledgement. At this point of the project, I was of the opinion that land acknowledgements are important and necessary, but because they're presented within or under oppressive systems like capitalism, they aren't going to be as effective as they could be. So the content, which is usually a rundown of who are the groups that are understood to have lived in the area, any treaties that apply, and potentially but not always an expression of gratitude or some such platitude, may not be the problem with the acknowledgements. It may be something deeper, something tied to the culture as being presented in and the intentions of who it is being presented by. Eli differed for me a bit on this. He's interested in seeing how we can expand the language of the acknowledgements, yes, but he's also suggesting that we cut a lot of the language that has been universally included in the acknowledgements. Eli mentioned a discussion he'd had with someone about land acknowledgements. Um, what would be an alternative to a land acknowledgement that he find would be what that would be much more beneficial, that would be much more impactful, right? And they say not having land acknowledgement at all, right? Um, not having a traditional land acknowledgement at all and changing it up and really p- applying more pressure, a, lo- a lot more urgency within your na- land acknowledgement, right? And that led me to really think about, okay, so what's my alternative then? How can I create my own land acknowledgement that's impactful, that's significant, that really um, places pressure or urgency on individuals to, to take action, right? And that's when I came up with the idea of like possibly one sentence, just leaving it to one sentence of acknowledging that yes, indigenous people have their land, have had their land taken away and constantly get their land taken away and so many of their other rights as well, right? Not just land. Um, and these are the organizations that you, the audience that is listening to me, can take part in to help provide some sort of reconciliation for these communities, right? And that's, and obviously I, I've participated and volunteered for these organizations myself just so I can not just talk the talk, I also walk the walk as well, right? So with my land acknowledgements now, I would always like acknowledge just one sense, very brief that indigenous people, as we all know, have, and as we've been saying for years and decades, have had their land taken away. Um, and it constantly is taken away along with several other rights of theirs. Um, but if you would genuinely want to help these communities, then join these organizations. I'm gonna place the pressure on you, the people listening to me, um, for my presentations or wherever I may be speaking publicly um, to take action and actually help these indigenous communities that you empath- that you claim you empathize or sympathize with, right? Um, and I feel like that is just much more impactful than just simply acknowledging pain and trauma, which is very important. But we are in a, a year now, we're in a decade, we're in a point in, uh, or a point in the world where we just acknowledge too much um, and we claim we empathize and sympathize with people too much but yet there's no visible action being taken right and we see that from our governments even today um, from parliament or for in Canada specifically with the Trudeau government we see so much acknowledgement especially for indigenous communities but there's never really significant change making sure action is being taken for the communities that I advocate for and the communities that I acknowledge myself are going through or have been going through some sort of trauma or pain. And I feel like that's so important. And I I feel like it just, it would mean a lot more to indigenous communities. And I really don't want to speak for them. That's why I am, like everything I'm saying is more of um, things, I'm speaking from my discussions with indigenous people themselves, not from my own forward feelings. 
because um, I want to acknowledge that I'm not Indigenous myself. So anything that I'm saying is just straight from discussions that I've had with Indigenous people um, from various Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just, just, it's, it's just a lot more meaningful for them to just see people on the sidelines with them, especially being racialized myself. Like I'm, um, I'm queer, I'm black and I'm Asian. And just whenever I see people providing support to whatever community that I'm advocating for, um, when it comes to my identity that aren't part of that community, it just means a lot, right? Cause you, it shows that your issues mean a lot to people who don't necessarily identify with your issues. But when I see them on those front lines with me and they're sort of like an accomplice um, to my fight for justice, it really is a lot, it, it's, it, means, it means a lot more. Eli and I actually presented together for a class presentation on neoliberalism and planning. And before that presentation, he did a land acknowledgement. In it, he gave examples of groups in Toronto that are doing work he thought the class should support. A lot of people seemed to appreciate this as they came up afterwards to thank him for the suggestions. Eli used the term accomplice to describe himself and the people who fight alongside him in the struggles he faces as a racialized queer person living in Toronto. Because he has some experience already working with Jay Pitter, a well-known urbanist and planning consultant in the city, I was curious about how he felt about his role as a planner. Thinking along the lines of being accomplices, I asked him, Do you see planners as accomplices? So I feel like the issue at, with planners, especially being an aspiring planner myself, is that um, there's always that saying that planners are planners first and then um, advocates second. I feel like you could definitely be a planner and an advocate at the same time. I feel like it's not impossible to um, ensure your plans or your work or your projects are not completely destroying communities, disrupting communities, or displacing communities. I feel like that is definitely not hard to do. And by putting in measures, by putting in policies that prevents those um, very disrupted things from occurring, or chaotic things from occurring, makes you an advocate and shouldn't necessarily be seen as two separate things. Because I feel like as soon as you start doing that, you start losing your respect and humanity when it comes to empathizing, sympathizing with certain individuals and groups. Um, And as soon as you start doing that, you'll start destroying communities, I find. I totally agree with Eli here. I think in an effort to get York students to focus on the technical knowledge we need in the field as opposed to heavy theory, we are sometimes reminded to be mindful of the differences between planning and advocacy. But it seems like the tools that planners have at their disposal, whether they be policy documents or public meetings, are based in the idea of advocacy. I see this as a recognition of the political element of planning. For whatever reason, there are some people, including professors, city employees, and planners, who see politics as irrelevant to planners. There's a good chance that even though their work may change dramatically, planners will remain regardless of who holds office. This looks quite different than jobs that are viewed as political, such as aides or councils. But as many a York student will tell you, this field is not apolitical. It is dangerous to view it as such, because that can allow planners to view themselves as just the policy guys, and not have to contend with or consider the very real impacts guided by politics that their planning decisions can have on the rest of the public. Because the main goal of this project is to get a sense of how planning, and thus planners, can respond to and work through land acknowledgements, I am really interested in the idea of planners as advocates. I asked Eli for some examples of how planners can take on that advocacy role. This is, of course, complex, especially because I'm also interested in the decolonial possibilities in planning. On one hand, if we're to consider how planning has so far offered a space for advocacy, 
We have to look at the fact that planning's current method of consultation with Indigenous people nationwide leaves much to be desired. Eli notes that at the very least, For one, they should be in the room when they're being spoken to because there is a whole issue about speaking for others. And people shouldn't be speaking for others, especially if they have no idea what those communities have experienced throughout their lives or their histories, right? Right. You need to bring these people into the room so they can speak for themselves. And you need to bring people who get to make sure they were consulted about this and not just one Indigenous individual and consult a whole Indigenous community. You know, have a proper working group and actually... And actually take what they're saying seriously, you know, because there are times when we have these public consultations and we just listen, right? And it goes out the other ear. And then we just write it down as if we just had a public consultation and that's done and done. I'll add to this too, that even duty to consult is laughable from an advocacy perspective. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the current conception of land in Canada is that crown title is what remains what aboriginal title has been subtracted from it. And that the province is required to consult with local indigenous groups when there is a plan to infringe upon their Section 35 rights. Even then, if the province can prove that the proposed development is for the public good, the development can override any Aboriginal claim to the land. So when planners come in to consult, where exactly is the power located in that interaction? Nonetheless, I think both Eli and I understand that there is a basic necessity to establishing contact with the people who will be affected by the development. We know that this doesn't exist in many cases, so it gives us somewhere to start. And in the script, I've written large sigh, and that is exactly where I'm at emotionally. Eli also discussed how land acknowledgements specifically can fit into planning. I feel like recommending groups as if I would do it in a more of an academic setting is not enough. Um, I feel like at that point, have a mini workshop before you start start your presentation or start discussing your project about um, how your project can impact the indigenous communities. Have that as a special feature in a workshop, right? And that can be looking at your plan, right? And seeing how doing something that for an indigenous community in one sort of area can impact them um, or asking, going around the room and asking people uh, or how can indigenous um, issues and trauma be acknowledged within the plans and projects that they're doing and have a sort of working group with that in the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of a presentation or beginning of a meeting. I think a land acknowledgement when it comes to the planner's specific work should be applied differently than just like, like again, acknowledging that land has been stolen. Because land acknowledgement doesn't necessarily have to mean a simple, actual, traditional acknowledgement of stolen land. I feel like a nice, neat way of implementing a sort of planning knowledge with we'll um, initiative or policies within our planner's work is putting in a note, rather, not policy or clause or anything, but like putting in a note in the work that certain proposals or certain sort of ideas or policies uh, they may, may disproportionately affect indigenous communities right and i feel like simply doing that sort of land acknowledgement is impactful and is a good way to implement sort of land acknowledgement initiatives in the work that you do using this land to create this sort of amenity for the community something that's related to an indigenous community or something that holds space for indigenous communities that are very prominent within this residential area or within this part of the city um, is a great way of also um, imp- implementing some sort of planning knowledge uh, land acknowledgement um, initiative or sort of policy within your work um, so I feel like there's definitely workarounds um, and you can it's definitely easy to stray away from the traditional way of uh, traditional way of of, uh, providing or doing land acknowledgements and you can get very um, clever with it in a sense and instead advocate for um, the fair treatment of indigenous communities in the work that you do right 
and that's already done i know like um i believe the north york secondary plan of 2018 or 2019 sorry forgetting the year um their most recent one it should be um if i remember correctly they did have uh they had certain um areas or they had certain zones that they were recommending be um be given or sorry be uh be uh certain zones that may, that they wanted to ensure had space for indigenous communities, right? And they were talking about putting in a, an indigenous, um, I guess, historical um, sort of space. So I don't know necessarily a museum, but it was a space that where indigenous, uh, indigenous individuals display their histories. I think Eli was actually thinking of the downtown secondary plan for Toronto's official plan. Toronto is thought of as a city of neighborhoods, and this is reflected in the way it is planned. The official plan includes several secondary plans for various areas of the city, which includes the downtown core. So in the Parks and Public Realm section, which is part 7 of the downtown secondary plan, policies are listed, a few of which caught my eye, and I'm going to list them here. So it starts with saying, Parks have an intrinsic role in shaping the urban landscape, creating a healthy, connected city, and contributing to placemaking, livability, and resilience. Parks are an essential element of complete communities. New, expanded, or improved parkland located within and serving downtown will be acquired and provided to, and then I'm going to skip ahead to the parts which are relevant for us, which is 7.3.2, and that's to reinforce historic places, including those places of Indigenous presence previously unrecognized. 7.3.3, which is celebrate Indigenous histories and recognize cultural and natural heritage through placemaking, naming, wayfinding, monuments, interpretive features, public art, partnerships, and programming and 7.3.4, which is support Indigenous cultural and ceremonial practices through the provision of programmable spaces. And all of this can be found on page 21 of the Downtown Secondary Plan. The section introduces these policies by stating that, quote, natural features are the setting for downtown Toronto. They create a link to Indigenous histories and are valued by contemporary Indigenous people. That's also on page 21. While this isn't as concrete as what Eli had mentioned, I cannot find any other comparable line in the official plan or in any other secondary plan documents. I think this is as good a time as any to once again do a deep dive, this time into policy and how the facts of land acknowledgements fit into this whole picture. As a means of legitimizing the presence of settlers, planning served to solidify the colonial idea of Canada. By confirming street placement via maps or setting about the construction of services needed in new settlements to build them into cities, planners participated in the building of the nation from the get-go. In his 2004 book, Unsettling the City, Urban Land and the Politics of Property, Nicholas Blomley states that, quote, the city is a site of particular ideological, material, and representational investments on the part of the settler society. Therefore, native contestation has a particular valence here, and that's on page 127. This contestation, as it was put into action, is analyzed by Julie Tomiak in her article on Chief Teresa Spence's hunger strike on Victoria Island in Ottawa. She argues that the use of scale jumping, that is, locating the site of the hunger strike on an unceded island within view of Parliament Hill to call attention to concerns about Attawapiskat First Nation on the west coast of James Bay is a method of re-establishing boundaries and reconfiguring entrenched colonial understandings of place. Tomiak's article points to cities as a particularly important center of colonial power and notes that, quote, to ignore the historical production and contemporary contestations related to, quote, Ottawa, 
is to entrench settler colonial power and existing injustices in and of the city, and it forecloses possibilities for different decolonizing politics. And that's on page 11 of her article. The same can be said for all Canadian cities, I'd argue, and Tomiak and Chief Spence chose Ottawa because of its identity as the nation's capital. The literature that is critical of planning as a profession points to the context in which planning arose as a source of contention. Oren Yiftikel states in an article entitled Planning and Social Control, Exploring the Dark Side, quote, a perception of planning as an activity devised to reform and improve cities, regions, and society is too narrow, too idealistic, and often unrealistic. Such a perception ignores the position of planning as an arm of the modern nation-state. Empirically, it overlooks the numerous instances in which planning functions as a form of deliberate social control and oppression exercised by elites over weaker groups. That's page 397. Here, land acknowledgments do a lot of important work. By referencing the history of the area and talking about what happened there, slash who was pushed out, or who still thrives, we're bringing the legitimacy of the city into question and are potentially chipping away at the myth that has been built around Canada and its cities. In the previous episode, the person I interviewed noted that people doing land acknowledgements in BC would often cite the wrong Indigenous group when speaking about whose territory they were on, conflating and mixing up Musqueam, Squamish, and Slavatooth. Getting these correct draws lines through streets and buildings and points out that settler society was physically projected onto what had already existed in the area for millennia, including not only the boundaries of indigenous territories, but the natural elements of the area as well. This is a large part of a settler colonial mindset, seeing the world as a blank canvas to be developed and built on top of, and to not even acknowledge that things are being erased because those things, like trees, waterways, and natural geographic formations, don't register as part of the world. If they come into the consciousness of settlers at all, they represent barriers, sources of extractable wealth, or sources of fear, or unfamiliar things that must be crushed and tamed. In many ways, the environmental movement has fetishized Indigenous people and their long-standing relationship with the land. Hippies and environmentalists without an anti-racist and anti-capitalist analysis alike love to see the work of Indigenous people through the lens of the noble savage. This certainly did not start with the hippies, however, and stretches as far back as one can go, when early explorers saw inhabitants of what's referred to as North and South America as part of the ecology of the place. This makes it quite easy to then conflate indigenous people with the resources extracted for profit in the area. It also allows for conflation of the development of settler cities and the organization and ordering of the land with a displacement of indigenous communities and destruction of the natural environment. Indigenous communities were not treated as nations through the settling and treaty building process because they were thought of as part of nature, not as sovereign, independent, or long-standing nations. And I'm saying nation here knowing that this is a settler term and is inadequate, but the weight that it holds, especially as nation-to-nation talks are upheld as a potential route forward, makes me inclined to use it when attempting to reference the racism that inflects relationships between settlers and indigenous people. And so to understand planning's role in colonization is to understand how relationships between settlers and indigenous people were built on racism from the outset. Writing on the oversimplification of land use in the Mississauga-Algonquin conflict of territorial boundaries in the 1783-1923 period, Marika Heidema, Brian S. Osborne, and Michael Ripmeister state, Formerly unbounded space became limited by boundaries and appropriated as regulated territory. The usual assumption is that these different social constructions may be attributed to long-standing cultural and even racial categories of difference. Indeed, much has been written about the theoretical constructions of innocence, savagery, and nobility. Whatever the lens, by the 18th century, Europe had positioned itself as the arbiter for assigning the relative hierarchy of stages of human development. 
and that's on page 88. I find this helpful in its analysis of the ways that land, especially in southwestern and southeastern Ontario, was referred to in treaties. The European practice of assigning one group as a holder and then the surrenderer of a large tract of land oversimplified land use pre-European contact. It rendered complex relationships and communal use agreements into Eurocentric property titles, all of which was done with the express purpose of then making it easy to surrender and be absorbed by the settler state. Accounting for the ways Indigenous people across U.S.-Canadian borders were and are represented in the media, Thomas King writes in The Inconvenient Indian that he sees three categories created to describe Indigenous people, quote, the bloodthirsty savage, the noble savage, and the dying savage. That's page 84. In terms of how planning dealt with these stereotypes, it used the first, the bloodthirsty savage, as a picture of what lays in Limnar Hills, where there remains land beyond the reach of the grid system. It fetishized the image of the noble savage, and, when attempting to reference the past inhabitants of the land and crown were moving beyond, held up the stereotype in order to give a final farewell wave. In planning reaffirmed the third trope, the dying savage, as it constantly pushed for the image of all indigenous communities to become one of the past, albeit the recent past. They still were there, so you can't say they're completely out of the past, but by golly, we're sure going to make sure they're on their way out. As planning works side by side with settler forms of representation in order to define and confine Indigenous people in ill-fitting and oppressive relationships with Canada, it also halted all conceptions of Indigenous futurity and historicity. Haidema et al. states that the same impulse to define, order, and classify the natural world prompted the classification and fixing of native peoples in ethnographic time and geographical space. European conceptualizations of political territory could not accommodate spatial overlap, and eventually the initial assigned territories became ossified in official maps, Indian department documents, and treaties and surrenders. That's page 89. I mentioned in the previous episode the complexities of the Toronto Purchase. As a reminder, there was a discussion between the Mississaugas, now of the Credit River, and Sir John Johnson in 1787, where 1,700 British pounds of goods were exchanged. This was not a sale discussion, but rather an agreement over land use. This was later termed a treaty-making ceremony, even though the deed that was found many years later had no signatures on it. In 1805, the new treaty was created, which established boundaries on paper, which is a process still highly contested given that everyone who had been at the 1787 meeting had passed away. This surreptitiously added land into the agreement. The Mississaugas of the new credit were given 10 shillings in this deal. Only seven years later would they prove indispensable in pushing back the Americans as they attempted to invade Canada. This piece of land was pursued for military interests in order to establish boundaries to be protected, and was legitimated by the presence of settlers, regardless of the presence of an agreed-upon treaty or not. In his aforementioned article, Yiftikel defines planning as the formulation, content, and implementation of spatial public policies. That's on page 395. Going back to the policies of Toronto's downtown secondary plan, I am tempted to point out that a quick search for the word indigenous within the 92-page document returns a handful of hits, the vast majority of which are found within the parks and public realm section. The word appears when discussion of consultation with Indigenous peoples is brought up, and other than this assertion of modernity, firmly attaches Indigenous to ideas of natural settings and the past. I also searched within the official plan, and while Indigenous did not return any results, I had more luck with First Nations and Aboriginal, the latter scoring one. There is more variety in the ways in which First Nations was used, but although it was not as frequently included in discussions of nature, it was largely associated with heritage, conservation, and archaeology. Most of these mentions were in the Building a Successful City section, with one showing up in the Shaping the City section. 
Although it was not my intention to run an analysis of word usage, I found this short exercise interesting after having read and regurgitated all of that theory. The only mention of engagement with Indigenous communities in the official plan is found in this passage. The plan policies call for an engagement protocol with First Nations and the Métis for heritage properties and archaeological sites that may be of interest to them, as well as ensuring that information is provided to First Nations and Métis where archaeological resources are to be First Nations or Métis in origin. That's on page 3-10. This leaves much to be desired. The official plan is a document that encapsulates visions for the city held by planners and communities alike. It lays out land use designations and sets policy goals and outlines for areas of the city. But it is also a document that mentions things like community, people, diversity, and history several times, so that it holds an amount of administrative weight is not an accurate or reasonable excuse to have such sparse and stereotypical references to the people whose land the city was built on. I remember Dr. Luisa Sotomayor's class called Perspectives in Planning having a week on colonialism's role in planning. Although there was only one class with that title, this perspective was carried through the class by Luisa. Planning students at York, at least, are equipped with this knowledge and are encouraged to carry it into the field with them. Knowing the people I was surrounded by in this class, I am sure that our new generation of planners will do so confidently. Nonetheless, I worry that it is too often suggested that we change the system by implementing different policies and gradually turning the whole thing into a better machine, fixing it cog by cog. Maybe there's someone who can do that, but I don't think it works that way. I think what matters most is the way that planners carry all of this theory into the work and how that shapes them as planners. In our conversation, Eli brought up a statement that he described as a type of homelessness acknowledgement. Homeless people are human beings with immense value. They are members of our families, communities, neighborhoods, cities, and for a number of people reading this, they are themselves or have been homeless. The fact that homeless people do not have housing is a wrong done against them, not a sign that they have done something wrong. To then try and ban them from public spaces and existing in public, including doing things we all have to do like sleep or eat, is just another grievous wrong. An attack on homeless people is not protecting the community. It is an attack on the community because they are part of the community themselves. Homeless people aren't my enemy. Those who would ban them from things like sleeping in public are my enemy. We often see homeless people as second-class individuals, similar as we will see other marginalized groups as second-class individuals, like queer people, like QT BIPOC people especially, um, Black people, other racialized groups, Indigenous people, right? They're constantly seen as second class. Um, the individual's not just acknowledging the, 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 the disproportional treatment that it, the homeless community um, receives, but they're also standing by them. And they are checking their privilege at the door. Also, they, they um, stated that they will forfeit their privilege just to stand with them as well. He tied this to what he'd experienced working under Jay Pitter. Um, when she works on projects, she always states to the developers, and these are people at decision-making tables, that she says right to them, I will quit or I will not work with you if you either displace individuals or treat marginalized groups a certain way, which goes against my morals or my principles. There's a lot about planning I would change. Eli's suggestions about establishing a set of expectations for the relationship between the developer and the community, basic inclusion of people at the discussion table, and considering ways to include communities in policy are all valuable insights into how planners can maneuver through the system, morals intact. 
I also appreciate the idea of planners as advocates, and I think that this is one of the main differences between a planning education which is grounded in historical context and one which is not. My fiancé, a casual leftist military strategy historian, reminded me of the importance of campaigns in all this. Leftists are often hit with roadblocks in their search to fit their specific political goals into various structures which were founded in opposing systems of thought, whether they be legal systems or municipal planning. The groups that find success are those who see all pieces fitting together in the larger puzzle of a campaign. Land acknowledgements are one piece. They are not everything, and they are not nothing. What we can do is learn as much as we can about the structures we're working for and under, and not view this learning or these acknowledgements as the end of it all. Eli and I talked a lot about the role of planners can play as equity advocates. The homeless acknowledgement he read hit home for me as well, and because it talks about solidarity and structural systems, I wanted to use it as a model for this episode's land acknowledgement. The systems that make up Canada do not place value on Indigenous lives. Through the dismissal of sovereignty, the insistence on tokenizing treatment at all levels of government, the ignorance of suffering and simultaneous fetishization of trauma, and the constant relegation of an entire range of people to one group with one history, Canada and those who fight to uphold it are complicit in the very history they now try to distance themselves from. It is imperative that everyone who lives in the land known as Canada know the history of where they live. It's not a history that's easy to minimize into a few sentences. To say the facts but not know the context behind them is to reaffirm the acceptance of anti-Indigenous racism and continue to accept Canada as a legitimate state. The Toronto Purchase is more than a treaty. It is a set of lies layered on top of one another, first over the course of 18 years, then over 200 years. A sale was never conducted. Instead, words were misconstrued and documents irrelevant to one culture were used to subjugate it. Toronto is the result of a process of displacement and capture. Without recognition of Indigenous sovereignty, there is no path towards reconciliation, let alone conciliation. I'm referencing Michelle Daigle, who identifies herself as Mishkegwuk and is a member of the Constance Lake First Nation and Treaty 9 in Northern Ontario, in an article that was foundational to this episode entitled The Spectacle of Reconciliation, on the unsettling responsibilities to Indigenous people in the Academy. Indigenous people across this continent have long fought for sovereignty and the return of land. Over the years, I have learned about some of these resistances through the films of Alanis Abamsoin, including Ganasatake, 270 Years of Resistance, Trick or Treaty, and Incident at Restigouche. I've also been reading the work of people like Thomas King, Vine Deloria Jr., Leonie Sandercock, who also made a documentary with Giovanni Attili called Finding Our Way, Beyond Canada's Apartheid, the book Unsettling Canada, a national wake-up call by Arthur Manuel and Grand Chief Ronald M. Derrickson, and Laura Harjo's book Spiral to the Stars. These will all be in the notes for this episode. As a dedicated community activist, I also want to bring all of the theory into my life through community organizing. There are several groups in Toronto that do this activism, but I am thinking of the Grassy Narrows protest I attended last year. Grassy Narrows is a reserve in western Ontario that faces deadly levels of mercury in the water system after several tons of it was dumped upstream by Reed Paper Company in the 1960s. Over 90% of the reserve's population shows signs of mercury poisoning. I remember attending this protest and learning about the specifics after listening to the speakers. We were asked to stage a die-in on Bay Street in front of the Department of Indigenous Services Canada. Over 300 people showed up, to my recollection, and as we laid on the ground, looking up at the clouds passing over the tall, glassy buildings, the voice of a young activist came through on the speakers. She stated that when she had left the reserve a few days earlier, 
She never dreamed that there would be so many people to greet her and her family. The news footage of the event, although lacking and not capturing much of what speakers had said, featured people who seriously expressed that solidarity was the key to this fight that had been taken up a long time ago by people from Grassy Narrows. This demonstration was specifically to hold the federal government accountable to their promise to build a Mercury care home on the reserve and to commit to the cost of maintaining such a facility over the next 30 years, as is necessary to make any amount of change in the lives of the people affected by the dumping. At the time of the protest, only 1% of the funding for just the construction of the building had been paid, which froze the construction and support for people affected by the toxins in the water and soil. April 2020 was the 50th anniversary of the halt of fishing due to the contamination. The community has been facing this problem for several generations and continues to keep the pressure on the government. Chief Rudy Turtle and Mark Miller, Minister of Indigenous Services, signed a framework for the care facility near the anniversary this year, but the government has yet to secure funding for the operation of this site. You can read more at freegrassy.net. I'm also thinking of 1492 Land Back Lane near Six Nations being held by Haudenosaunee land defenders. After a questionable agreement was made between elected officials of the Six Nations Reserve and the Mackenzie Meadows developer, the construction site was occupied and an injunction was served. Details of the accommodation agreement were released after they were submitted as evidence for an injunction by the developer. Among the things agreed to by the elected council was that the council would make public declarations of support for the development and support the developers in any legal action that might arise from protests. In early August, land defenders were dragged off the property by Ontario Provincial Police. Those arrested faced large legal fees, and those who remained are, as of the most recent report I can find on the encampment on August 27th, working on building a cabin on the land, but remain worried about possible raids. Given the pandemic situation, much of the solidarity that has been expressed has been online, but I have also seen on the Facebook group that people are planning to travel to the area and offer support in any way that is called for. This event led me to learn more about the Haldeman Tract, which was a piece of land granted to Six Nations members by Governor-in-Chief Sir Frederick Haldeman in 1784. The Six Nations Reserve only covers 5% of the tract's total acreage and has gradually been illegally sold off or illegally transferred to settlers. Mackenzie Meadows is within the tract. The injunction sought against land defenders is, like many other injunctions granted to developers aiming to have defenders removed from tracks or roads, is seen as an extreme overreach of the Canadian court system. Injunctions are served by courts that cannot make decisions as it implies territorial boundaries, which are often still undetermined or within land claims processes. On August 24th, the Yellowhead Institute published a statement from concerned Haudenosaunee women regarding injunctions at 1492 Landback Lane, which calls for allies to amplify these messages safely and peacefully. Learning about past and present movements and talking about what is going on across this land helps us to situate ourselves as accomplices and as advocates. In becoming familiar with these struggles and resources, and I'm going to quote Michelle Daigle here again, we address what she sees as the, quote, root of responsibilities to Indigenous peoples, not a performance or feel-good mandate, but relations of responsibility and accountability based on Indigenous law that Indigenous people continue to embody, regenerate, and demand for radical and transformative change.